Sylvia Likens was a 16-year-old girl who, in 1965, was left in the care of the worst babysitter ever, Gertrude Banaszewski. Gertrude was a nightmare, and for seemingly no reason besides jealousy, drug use, and mental instability, seemed to just absolutely hate Sylvia. As soon as Sylvia and her sister Jenny were left at Gertrude's house, the horrific abuse began, most of which was targeted at Sylvia only. The horrifying violence that Gertrude put Sylvia through would rapidly become worse with every passing day. And within three months, Sylvia Likens would be dead. And the worst part of it all was that basically the whole freaking town knew what was going on in that house and nobody did a thing to stop it. This is the story of the murder of Sylvia Likens by Gertrude Banaszewski, the torture mom. Welcome to the Cleaning and Crime podcast. My name is Elise, and my podcast is called What It Is because I have a series on YouTube where I post a time-lapse video of me cleaning my house, while at the same time, I'm telling you a true crime story that's interesting to me because I love to listen to true crime while I clean and do my chores. But some people find the cleaning footage too distracting, or they just prefer to listen to their true crime and not watch it. So if that's you, you're in the right place. Trigger warning, this is a true crime podcast, so be sure to check the show notes on this episode for specific trigger warnings, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome back, and welcome to 2024, which I am dubbing the year of listener requests. Throughout 2023, I had a ton of case recommendations from you guys, which I love. And so over my holiday break that I took, I went through every comment, every DM, every email, and I just compiled a list of all the cases that you guys have recommended. And it's really long. <laughs> I think it's going to take me this entire year to get through them all. So that's pretty exciting. And so that's why I'm starting the year off with this case, because this was actually the most requested case that came in from you guys because you guys are a bunch of sickos, this case is awful. <laughs> and if you're not familiar with this case and you don't know what you're getting into, you need to mentally prepare yourself. And trigger warning, we're going to talk about a lot of child abuse. A lot. And things can get pretty graphic over here, okay? So if that doesn't sound like something you can handle, there's no shame in turning this video off. Make sure you protect your mental health. And please check the description box or the podcast show notes for specific trigger warnings for today's story. Thank you. Because she's a doozy today. Our story is set in 1965, and the subject of today's story is Sylvia Likens. Sylvia was a teen girl who lived with a very large family. She was one of five children, and the family was pretty poor, and they often struggled to make ends meet. Sylvia's father, Lester Likens, only had an eighth grade education, and Lester and his wife Betty fought constantly. They had a very tumultuous relationship. Now, in the early summer of 1965, Sylvia's mother, Betty, actually took Sylvia and her sister, Jenny, in the middle of the night, and they packed up and they left the house to escape Lester. And they hopped on a bus and went a few towns over. But when they got there, Betty realized that she'd actually used all of the money they had just to get the bus tickets. So by the time they got a few towns over, they had no money left for food. So Betty ended up going into a store and stealing some things for her and the girls. But unfortunately, she got caught and was arrested and sent to jail right there. The two girls were in a pickle. They were teenage girls in a strange town with no money and nowhere to go. So Sylvia and her sister Jenny are just standing on the sidewalk, crying, hugging each other, consoling each other, trying to figure out what they're going to do. And another teenage girl who was about the same age as them sees them and approaches them like, hey, are you guys okay? And this girl really took pity on them and felt really bad for them. And she actually offered, hey, why don't you come with me to my friend Paula's house? It's my usual after school hangout. There's going to be a ton of other teenagers there smoking and drinking because like her mom doesn't give a shit. She's like not like a regular mom. She's a cool mom. So we can like smoke and drink do whatever we want and you can just come and hang out at this party and wait for your parents to figure their shit out you know and you can probably even sleep there so jenny and sylvia went with their new friend to 3850 east new york street and they were introduced to her friend who lives there paula banaszewski and they just sat around drinking soda listening to records now paula also took pity on these girls and she actually asked her mother gertrude if the two girls could sleep there and wait it out until their parents found them and figured out what to do and gertrude didn't really care so jenny let 
Likens. Jenny Likens was 15 years old and she was a nice, quiet girl. And she had a pronounced limp and was forced to walk with a leg brace after a bout of childhood polio. Sylvia Likens was 16 years old and she was described as a very, very pretty girl, despite the fact that she was missing a front tooth, which is why she always smiled without showing her teeth. By the way, if you're watching the video version of today's story, this is our new cat, Biscuits. I'm sure you can see why we named her Biscuits. She doesn't stop. <laughs> Just always making biscuits. Anyway. <laughs> so the two sisters slept over at Paula Batazuski's house. The next morning, Lester Likens finds out that his wife was arrested a few towns over and he heads straight to the jail to talk to her and bail her out. Lester and Betty talked and as usual, they made up and Lester bailed Betty out of jail. But now they're broke as shit. All of their money went to Betty running away and then Lester bailing Betty out of jail. <laughs> so quickly, Lester managed to secure a job for the two of them with a traveling carnival running a concession stand. But that's not really the type of job that you can bring kids with. But they were desperate. And the job was only going to be for about five months. But they needed to figure out what to do with their five kids while they were gone. The oldest, Diana, 19, was already married and living with her husband. So one down. Lester was able to call the grandparents of the children and they agreed to take the two oldest sons, Jenny's twin, Benny, 15, and Diana's twin, Daniel, 19, because the grandparents were happy to have the boys who could help around the house and earn some income, but they didn't want the girls. So Lester needed to find a place for just Sylvia and Jenny. So basically Lester and Betty just wandered around this strange town asking around like, hey, have you seen these two girls? My one daughter has a leg brace and a limp. And eventually they found out that Sylvia and Jenny had gone over to the Banaszewski's place, which was the usual teen hangout. So Lester just walked right up to Gertrude's door, knocked on the door and was like, hey, are my kids here? So Gertrude and Lester ended up standing on the front porch talking about Lester and Betty's situation. And we don't really know who whose idea it was. But in the end, Lester ended up offering Gertrude $20 a week to take in his two daughters and watch them while Lester and Betty went to go live that sweet, sweet carny life. So $20 a week for room and board. And then the girls could just go to school with Gertrude's kids because Gertrude had seven kids of her own. So the house was full of kids anyway. What's two more? And like I said, the carnival was actually going to be done in November, so it was only going to be for about four or five months. And Lester asked all this of a woman he had never met before, just met this minute. He knew nothing about her, and he didn't even step through the front door to examine the house. And he even said to Gertrude that perhaps she could straighten the girls out a bit. Great. This is this is great parenting. Now, had Lester even walked through the front door and taken a look for a second, he would have seen that the house was strewn about with drunk teenagers. Everything was covered in a thick layer of dirt and dust and grime. There was no stove, no microwave. The only food in the kitchen were stale crackers and moldy bread. And there were only a few beds in the house, not even enough for half of the kids that actually lived there. But yeah, no problem. My two daughters can totally live here. They'll be fine. <laughs> It'll be great. Now, Gertrude kind of felt like she had no choice and couldn't say no. And on top of that, 20 bucks a week sounded pretty freaking great because Gertrude was also broke as shit and desperate. I mean, everybody in the story was broke and desperate. So that's the plan. And Lester just says, peace out, kids, and leaves his daughters with this woman that he doesn't know. And Gertrude just let all the kids in the house fend for themselves. She ironed a few things for a few neighbors for a little bit of cash. And she mostly spent her days struggling with her asthma symptoms, sleeping, and trying to battle her crippling depression with handful after handful of pills. She was doped up out of her gourd while waiting for her first check to arrive in the mail. But the first check was late. Late! That motherfucker Lester. He dumped these kids on her and said he would pay and he lied? So, totally normal reaction, Gertrude flew into an uncontrollable rage. She grabbed Sylvia and Jenny and pulled them into a bedroom, forced the girls to drop their skirts and underwear and kneel over the bed. And Gertrude screamed at the girls, quote, I took care of you two bitches for nothing. You're no good lying rat of a father promised me that he'd pay his way. It's been a week and I haven't seen a goddamn cent. And if he doesn't pay, you get beat. End quote. Sounds like a really pleasant lady. And then she gave them both the ass whooping of a lifetime with a wooden paddle, like a freaking fraternity. And she made sure to hit Jenny's bad leg extra hard. After the beating, Gertrude threatened the girls and said that if Lester's money never showed up, she would, quote, rent them out like whores, end quote. And that is Gertrude's, one of her favorite words. It's not a word that I like to use, but it's a quote. Lester's check arrived the next day. 
it had been delayed by the Postal Service when crossing state lines. Now, the girls hoped that this was just a one-time lapse in judgment, but the abuse was just beginning. And in three months' time, Sylvia Likens would be dead. So let's back up a little bit here. Who the hell is Gertrude Banaszewski? You know me. You guys know me. You know I love a backstory. So... Gertrude Van Fossen was born in Indianapolis in September 1929. So depression era. So naturally in her family, things were a little rough. And she was one of six kids. We actually don't know a ton about Gertrude's life growing up, but we know a few things like how Gertrude was a daddy's girl. She had a very special relationship with her father and her other siblings didn't really have that. And this relationship caused Gertrude's mother and all of her siblings basically to just not like her. So her mother and her siblings were either mean to her or ignored her or bullied her. And even going to school wasn't a reprieve for Gertrude because the kids at school ostracized her and bullied her as well. So Gertrude hated school and she almost never went. And the only time that Gertrude ever felt happy was when she was home with her father. But unfortunately, Gertrude's father died right in front of her when she was 10. I guess she was just reading him a book and boom, he had a massive heart attack right there and just died. And then Gertrude's mother blamed Gertrude for her father's death. Like, I'm sure that that event was traumatic enough for a 10-year-old, but then for your mother to be like, well, it was your fault. I guess your story sucked or something. I can't imagine being 10 years old and having my father die in front of me and then my mother blaming me for it. Now, this obviously deeply affected Gertrude, and as a result, every night she had night terrors. When Gertrude was a teenager, she had no friends, and she hated her family, and so she put all of her energy into the male gaze. She learned quickly that if she was promiscuous or acted or dressed a certain way, she got lots of attention from whatever man or boy she wanted, and the better she felt. By the time Gertrude was 15, she was sleeping with older men in their 20s. And by the time Gertrude was 16, she was so sick of her life at home, so sick of her mother berating her for being such a slut, so she eloped with an 18-year-old boy, man, guy, and she moved out with him. Now, this guy was John Banaszewski, and he was a young police officer, and the two had known each other for about two months. But it's the 1940s, so... Now, John managed to get a small loan and got them a little house in the suburbs. But the marriage was rough right away. John wanted his standard 1940s housewife with the apron and the yes dear. He wanted someone to take care of him and cook and clean for him and basically be his mother that he could sleep with. But instead, Gertrude was pretty domineering and she pushed back a lot and she didn't put up with John's shit. She didn't want to cook for him all the time and pick up all his shit. She just wanted to do whatever she wanted, but also have a nice husband around. She wanted someone like her father. But instead, she got a husband that wanted her to put an apron on and that was physically abusive. And when they were still supposed to be in their honeymoon phase, Gertrude was receiving regular beatings from her new husband for, quote, annoying him. And then she basically spent the next 10 years pregnant or breastfeeding. She had four kids within that time. And then once she had all those kids, she basically just started ignoring John. And this pissed John off. And he increased the frequency and severity of the beatings. Because that is how you get a woman to love you and respect you. (laughs) Sarcasm. But by this point, Gertrude was just completely done with his shit. So Gertrude actually filed for divorce and was granted full custody of the kids, which I mean, it was the 1950s at this point. So really pretty taboo and shocking for Gertrude to be like, I'm done. He's abusive and file for divorce. Well, anyway, she kicked his ass out. And to really stick it to John, Gertrude married a new dude in three months, Edward Guthrie. But Edward was a shitty choice. This guy was an unemployed alcoholic who stole Gertrude's child support checks from John the second they hit the mailbox and then went to the bar and spent it all. But Gertrude used her wits and her tits to fix the situation. She used sex with Edward to get him to stop drinking. She used sex to convince him to go find a good job. Now, I don't know if she used the sex like as a punishment, as a weapon, like if you have a drink, no sex, or if she used it more of like a reward, like, hey, if you quit drinking, lots and lots of sex. I don't really know. But either way, she used sex to manipulate this guy to better himself. And it worked, I guess. This guy got totally sober, found a good job, and then things were looking up. But then when this guy was clear headed, he realized, you know, I think there's better prospects out there for me than this divorcee with four kids. So he dumped her. 
And Edward filed for divorce without even telling Gertrude in person. And they split up after only three months of marriage. Now, not long after the second divorce, Gertrude happened to bump into her ex-husband, John Banaszewski, out on the streets. And they got to chatting. And Gertrude invited John over for dinner, you know, to catch up and see the kids. And he went. And the kids were super excited because daddy was over for dinner. And they were even more excited when he was still there the next morning for breakfast. And you guessed it. The two got back together. The family was back together. Gertrude and John rekindled the romance and they got remarried. And things were actually great for a little while. But then Gertrude got pregnant and she sadly lost the baby like pretty late term, which is horrifying and traumatic. And it sent Gertrude spiraling into a crippling depression that left her bedridden and unable to care for herself or the family. And rather than John being supportive and helping her through this difficult time, he just became physically abusive again. Does he think just like slapping her around is going to knock her out of it? And unfortunately for absolutely everyone, this began a cycle of Gertrude getting pregnant, either having a kid or a miscarriage, and then John physically abusing her over and over and over again for the next seven years. Gertrude had two babies during this time, but John just was done. He couldn't take it anymore, and he filed for divorce this time. And 37-year-old Gertrude, again, had full custody of their now six children, and her only income was John's child support checks, and her mental health was in the gutter, and she couldn't afford the mortgage payments. So Gertrude tried to find a new man replacement to help her financially. And she started hooking up with this married guy named Dennis Wright, who was 27. So 10 years younger than her. Like I said, Dennis was married, but his wife quickly discovered the affair and left. And Gertrude wasted no time and just took her kids and moved into Dennis's house. Like, oh my God, thank God she's gone. Just packed her packs and brought her six kids over. Like, like she didn't even ask him, like, can I move in? She just moved in. <laughs> so Dennis went from being this young newlywed to fucking that up royally. And now he suddenly had a 37-year-old woman that's been divorced three times and her six kids living in his house. Like overnight. <laughs> you dummy. Now, as soon as Gertrude got through the door, she was like, marry me. Marriage? Want to get married? We should get married. But Dennis was like, no way. <laughs> no way. No way. He didn't want to suddenly be responsible for somebody else's six kids. And then... Dennis got super pissed when Gertrude came to him and told him she was pregnant. His reaction? To punch Gertrude in the stomach repeatedly. And guess what? She realized that she lost the baby the next morning. <sighs> but for some reason, they stayed together after that freaking nightmare. And Gertrude got pregnant again. But this time, she did not tell Dennis until it was too late. And then she freaking went to the hospital to have the baby. And when she got home from the hospital with their newborn son, Dennis Jr., she realized that Dennis had already packed his bags and left while she was at the hospital. And he left without even leaving a damn note. So here she was, 40, alone in some other couple's starter home. She had seven children, had had six miscarriages, and she fell into another deep, dark depression hole that left her unable to eat and drink or shower. She had many unidentified illnesses and a serious pill addiction. And she smoked like a chimney. And Gertrude started looking super rough, lost a ton of weight, and she looked like a skeleton with sunken eyes and her hair was falling out. Now, Gertrude's oldest daughter, Paula, was 16 at this time. And Paula comes home one day and tells Gertrude that she is pregnant. And the father of the baby is a middle-aged married man. Oh, good. But Gertrude, in her very depressed state, hopped up on pills, basically said, No, no, you're not. You're not pregnant. That's silly. And just ignored it and pretend that conversation never happened. And then Paula, even by the time she was six months pregnant, was very successfully hiding the pregnancy from everyone. Like, if we all just ignore this, maybe it'll go away. 
And with seven kids in the house and really no parental supervision, neighborhood kids started hanging out at Gertrude's house all the time because she was just not in a good enough mental state to be the responsible adult in the house. So basically, she just let whoever come in and out and do whatever they want, which was appealing to all of the local teenagers, obviously. So all the teenagers in town would just take over the living room and smoke and drink and make messes. And Gertrude was over here just trying to stay afloat. Then one day, Paula's friend brings these two strange teenage girls over. And this is when Paula meets Sylvia and Jenny Likens while they wait for their father to get their mother out of jail for shoplifting. So... We have caught up to the original storyline. And now Lester has left Jenny and Sylvia in the care of Gertrude Banaszewski. Lester's money began coming in regularly, but Gertrude spent most of her money on cigarettes. And she only kept like stale bread and crackers around in the pantry. So Sylvia and Jenny often went hungry. Now the girls learned that the corner store in town actually gave you money in exchange for turned in glass soda bottles. So they got the idea to go around town and collect as many glass bottles as they could find, like on the side of the road, in the garbage, turned them into the store, collected their money, and they bought a big bag of candy. They ate half of it between the two of them, and they brought the other half home to share with Gertrude's children. But when Gertrude found out, she was pissed, and she insisted that they got the money from, quote, whoring, or that they had stolen the money from Gertrude. They told her, obviously, that they didn't steal, and they told her about the glass bottles, but Gertrude wouldn't hear it as she began beating Sylvia so severely that Jenny, in a panic, ended up confessing to stealing money from Gertrude just to get the beating to stop. And it just gets worse from here. The local church in town had a picnic, and Gertrude and the whole family went, including Sylvia and Jenny. And Sylvia and Jenny, because they were hungry, they ate a bunch of sandwiches. Well, a few people in church made a comment about, my, those girls have a great appetite. And Gertrude was horrified. Appearances were very important to her. And she didn't want people in town to think like she wasn't feeding the girls, which she wasn't. (laughs) Heaven forbid the town know the truth. So she angrily dragged all the kids home. For some reason, Gertrude really zeroed in on Sylvia. And from this point on, the majority of the abuse was targeted at Sylvia rather than Jenny. And there are a lot of theories as to why, but we'll talk more about this later. The hour has just struck happy. So I'm going to have myself a happy hour cocktail to get through the rest of this fucking story. So they get home from the church picnic. And Gertrude sits Sylvia down at the filthy kitchen table and said, you know, it was really too bad that you stuffed your face at the picnic because I actually prepared dinner for you today. And while Jenny and all of Gertrude's other children stood around and watched, Gertrude put together a hot dog from a stale bun and a can of expired sausages. Then she squeezed an entire bottle of ketchup and an entire bottle of mustard all over the top of the hot dog so that it filled the plate and oozed over the plate all over the table. Sylvia was just opening her mouth to be like, do you actually expect me to fucking eat that? And just as Sylvia opened her mouth to speak, Gertrude scooped up the hot dog and started shoving it down Sylvia's throat. Sylvia started gagging, and so Gertrude started shoving it further down her throat with her fingers, which then made Sylvia vomit all over the kitchen table. The half of the hot dog that she had gotten down and everything she'd eaten at the church picnic. Gertrude then told Sylvia, if you finish the rest, this will all be over. And all of Gertrude's kids are just standing there watching this all unfold. And Sylvia knew that if she said no, she was going to get the beating of a lifetime. So she just held her breath and forced down the other half of the hot dog. She looked up at Gertrude and said, I did it. But Gertrude said, no. All of it. And she forced Sylvia to scoop. I can't even say it. I can't even say it without gagging. She forced Sylvia to eat everything off of the table is how I'm going to say that so that I don't gag. Now, soon after the barf incident, Lester and Betty actually came to visit their daughters and see how they were doing. But Gertrude had thoroughly threatened the girls and they were terrified. So neither of them said anything to their parents about the abuse that they were suffering. And they had that meeting at a local park because Gertrude didn't want them to go to the house and see how absolutely trashed it was. 
And Gertrude told Lester and Betty how well behaved the girls are and how it's such a delight to have them in the house. When Betty, the girl's mother, mentioned concern over how much weight the two girls had lost in such a short amount of time, Gertrude said that the girls had started a new diet in solidarity with her daughter, Paula, who was getting kind of fat. And Betty was like, oh, okay. (laughs) It was the 60s, you know? Jesus Christ. I don't get it at all. I mean, obviously, I don't get any of this. But like, Gertrude hates having the girls there so much. So she tortures them. But why not just be like, I hate your girls. Take them back. Over $20 a week? Is it the money? Or does she like the torture? Girl, I don't don't know. I don't know, but it gets so much freaking worse. Things took a turn for the worse one afternoon when all the neighbor kids were over and they were hanging out, smoking and drinking and talking about teenagery things. And Gertrude was just like sitting off to the side and the kids are like going around the room, kind of being truth or dairy. Like, has anyone had sex? Has anyone kissed anyone before? Does anybody have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? How far have you gone? And they're just sitting there drinking and swapping stories, okay? Now, Gertrude's second old Stephanie shared a bunch of stories about her boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, who we will meet later, and he's an absolute piece of shit. Paula, the oldest daughter, was pretty tight-lipped during this conversation because, remember, she's still trying to hide a pregnancy. Although, by this point, pretty much everybody knew. (laughs) But no one dared say anything. Now, Jenny, Sylvia's sister, admitted that she hadn't had much luck with boys because of her leg, but that she had kissed a boy once. And all the kids were like, hey, all right, yeah, go Jenny, like cheered for her and whatever. But then it was Sylvia's turn, and Sylvia didn't really want to share because... Fuck these bitches. She's getting her ass kicked over here and Gertrude just made her eat her own barf and all these bitches just stood around and watched. Like she doesn't want to be their friends. But they pushed and they pried and eventually Sylvia gave in and Sylvia admitted yes, she did used to have a boyfriend before she came to live at Gertrude's and that one time she had let him feel her up. And at first, everyone was like, oh, hey, yeah, go Sylvia, all right. But the room soon became very quiet when Gertrude jumped up out of her seat, pointed at Sylvia and screamed, whore! Again, her word. And then she walked over to Sylvia and slapped her across the face. And then she went on this crazy rant about how, quote, God hates whores, how women are vile creatures and are inferior to men. And she again accused Sylvia of being a prostitute. That was the word she used this time. And she accused Sylvia of being pregnant. I just don't get it. I know I've already said that, but like, why was Sylvia so singled out? And why did Gertrude always call her a pregnant whore? Meanwhile, her actual daughter is sitting two feet away, actually pregnant. It's just the most bizarre story I've ever heard. Now, Sylvia tried to defend herself like, no, I'm not pregnant. But Gertrude slapped Sylvia again. And then she ordered two of the teenage boys in the room to grab Sylvia, hold her down on the ground and force her legs apart. And then Gertrude kicked her repeatedly between her legs. When Gertrude tired herself out and her asthma flared up, the two boys let go. And Sylvia got up and just stumbled to a chair and went to go sit down. And just before she sat down in that chair, Gertrude kicked the chair out from under her and Sylvia fell and landed on her back. And Gertrude yelled at her, whores aren't fit for chairs. Like, dude, what the fuck? Meanwhile, there's a living room full of Gertrude's children and all the neighborhood teens just watching this unfold. Watching and laughing, I might add. Who are these kids? Where are your parents? Now, after this, Gertrude would not allow Sylvia to sit in any chairs while she was home. And even when she could sit down at school, she was in horrible pain from that beating. And at school the next day, Sylvia went to go sit down in class at her desk and she winced at the pain and she looks over and she sees Stephanie laughing at her. Well, this pissed Sylvia off. She felt like she couldn't really fight back against Gertrude because she was too frightened of her and she didn't want her beatings to get worse. But maybe, maybe she could fuck shit up for Gertrude's kids as revenge. So Sylvia starts a rumor at school that she saw Stephanie and Paula entertaining older men at their house for money. Well, people believed it, I guess, because of the reputation that everyone in Gertrude's household had. 
And when Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, found out, he was so mad. Now, Coy at the time was 15. And like I said earlier, he was a piece of shit. Now, Coy left school early and headed straight to Gertrude's house and told Gertrude everything. And when Sylvia walked in the door after school, Coy was there and immediately grabbed her, started shaking her and asking her why she was spreading lies about his girlfriend. And Gertrude was just sitting there in the room in a chair and just repeated the question. Yeah, why are you spreading rumors about his girlfriend? And when Sylvia didn't respond, Gertrude egged on Coy and told him, you need to teach her a lesson. What kind of a man are you if you let this go? So Coy punches Sylvia in the face until she falls to the ground. And then Gertrude says to Coy, hey, why don't you show Sylvia some of your judo moves? And Coy literally starts picking up Sylvia and chucking her across the room over and over again. But then Gertrude didn't want Coy to break any of the furniture, so she told him to take her downstairs to the basement to continue his judo practice where he'll have more space. And he carried her down to the basement and was just picking her up and throwing her across the room, picking her up again and throwing her against the wall, just over and over while Gertrude sat on the stairs and watched. Eventually, his arms got tired and he couldn't pick her up anymore, so he went to go leave. And as he was leaving, Gertrude told him that he was welcome to come over anytime he likes to practice his judo moves because, quote, Sylvia deserves it. And then Gertrude made Sylvia spend that night on the basement floor. Now, Sylvia had a friend at school, one friend named Anna. But Anna kept saying things to Sylvia like, hey, why don't you ever come over to my house? And why don't you ever invite me over to your house to play? But Gertrude would never let her go over to a friend's house. And Sylvia was terrified to have a friend over to Gertrude's house. But eventually she caved and she brought this Anna girl home with her one day. But as soon as the two girls walked in, Gertrude grabbed the new friend Anna and said to her, oh, you're Anna. Well, Sylvia has been spreading rumors all around town that your mother is a whore and everyone believes it. And Anna burst into tears, punched Sylvia in the face and then ran home crying. So there went Sylvia's one friend. Then Gertrude, Stephanie and Paula did the same thing to Sylvia a few days later when they told one of Stephanie's friends that Sylvia had been spreading the same rumor about her mother. And then they encouraged this friend to go ahead and take her rage out on Sylvia because she deserved it. And this girl kicked and punched Sylvia repeatedly before leaving. Like, what the fuck? Who are these incredibly violent children? And then a few days after that, Gertrude forced Jenny to hit Sylvia, like out of nowhere. She was like, hey, punch Sylvia. And Jenny was obviously crying and refusing, but Gertrude told her, if you don't punch Sylvia, you will get it even worse from me. So Jenny punched Sylvia and then ran away crying. And then Sylvia just stumbled off to bed, which wasn't a bed at all. It was just a pile of dirty laundry that Gertrude had designated as Sylvia's bed. Have you ever heard a worse story? It's Awful. Now, over the next few weeks, Koi, the judo boy, was coming over almost daily for judo practice in the basement, using Sylvia as a punching bag. When fall came around, the school gym class started doing track and field type things outside, and they told Sylvia that she needed to purchase a track suit, a school track suit. Well, she knew that Gertrude was not going to buy her one, but she needed it for school. So in a panic, Sylvia ended up stealing one from a locker at school and wearing it for practice. And she got away with it at first, but then when she snuck it home and tried to wash it, Gertrude caught her. Now, Gertrude grabbed Sylvia and dragged her to the kitchen and threw her to the ground and kicked her repeatedly, only stopping to light her cigarette. Then to cure Sylvia of her sticky fingers, Gertrude burned every single fingertip with her lit cigarette because that's what thieves get. And Sylvia passed out from the pain. When she woke up, Gertrude dragged Sylvia into the living room in front of a sea of teenage boys that were drinking. <sighs> then Gertrude forced Sylvia to strip in front of these drunk teen boys. And they're all chanting, do it, do it. And she just had to stand there naked and shivering, crying and staring at the floor, just waiting for it to be over. But I guess that wasn't enough of a punishment for Gertrude. And off of the coffee table, Gertrude grabs a large glass Coke bottle. Mm -mm. 
And listen, I don't need to go into graphic detail about this, but Gertrude sexually assaulted Sylvia with the bottle. Okay? That's all I'm going to say. Until Sylvia was screaming, crying, and bleeding, and passed out again from the pain. Stephanie and Paula were also in the room when this happened, and Gertrude told them to carry Sylvia to her dirty pile of laundry, and just, they left her there, naked and unconscious. Like, there was a room full of freaking teenagers. Like, watching that? Nobody, nobody got up and ran out. Nobody went to go get an adult. Nobody thought, hey, this is really fucked up. I should go get my mom. Not one person thought they should call the cops after that. Where is this town full of monsters in Indiana? Jesus Christ. And from this point on, every smoker in the house used Sylvia to put out their cigarettes. Now, this attack with the glass Coke bottle injured Sylvia very seriously, and it left her permanently incontinent. She woke up in the morning in horrible pain on a urine-soaked pile of dirty laundry. And this sent Gertrude into a rage. And she called Sylvia an animal and told her that she wasn't fit to sleep upstairs with the humans. And Gertrude brought Sylvia down to the basement. Sorry, she didn't bring her down to the basement. She kicked her down the basement stairs and told Sylvia that she would be sleeping in the basement from now on. Sylvia begged Gertrude to take her to a doctor because she was in horrible pain. But Gertrude just locked the door and left her down there, naked and in pain. In the morning, Gertrude went downstairs to check on Sylvia and found that she had wet herself again. So to clean her, Gertrude had Coy the judo boy and her son, John Jr., and another neighborhood boy, Ricky Hobbs, carry Sylvia upstairs and put her in the bathtub, where she put Sylvia in a tub of scalding hot water. And then Gertrude and Paula washed Sylvia using using handfuls of salt. I mean, what the fuck is happening? How is this story still going? Jesus. And speaking of this boy, Ricky Hobbs, Ricky was 14. And it was at this point in the story that Gertrude had really taken Ricky under her wings. And she made him her personal assistant. And he was Gertrude's go-to when she needed help dealing with the Sylvia problem. Now, many believe that Gertrude had groomed this boy and seduced him and was having an obviously inappropriate sexual relationship with this minor, but it was never officially proven. But it was said that at this point, it was like a light switch flipped for Ricky and his personality just dramatically shifted. He went from being a good kid, an honorable student, never been in trouble before, to almost overnight, he became a very angry, sad kid getting into all kinds of trouble, and then he would do anything that Gertrude asked him to do without flinching. Now, from this point on, Sylvia stopped going to school. Honestly, she was too injured, and she was being locked naked in the basement all day every day. She couldn't get to school. But Coy kept coming over and practicing his judo on her down there, and he would just come up out of the basement covered in sweat when he was done. And John Jr. started asking his friends, hey, you guys want to see the naked messed up girl in my basement? And Gertrude all of a sudden was like, light bulb moment. This is a money making opportunity for me. So Gertrude started charging a nickel to come see the messed up naked girl in the basement or a dime if you wanted to punch, hit or kick Sylvia down the stairs. And things escalated very quickly after this. Sylvia, who Gertrude was now calling Dirty Girl, was emaciated. She was incontinent. She was dehydrated. She was out of it. She wasn't being bathed anymore. She wasn't allowed to eat or drink, except for when they force-fed her her own feces or forced her to drink her own urine, which they made her save in a coffee tin. On the rare occasion that Gertrude gave her anything to eat, it was like in a fucked up way. Like, here, here's some soup for you, but it's just broth and you have to eat it with your fingers. But at this point, Sylvia was dying. Like, she was on the brink of death. And you know what's so fucked up to me? Like, there were so many opportunities to save this girl. And I don't just mean like if Sylvia hadn't been brainwashed and traumatized and had been able to ask someone, anyone for help. I mean, like, when she stopped going to school. The school did nothing. No calls home, no calls to Gertrude, no calls to her actual parents, nothing. Also, 
One time, Gertrude's reverend, Roy Julian, he showed up to visit at Gertrude's house as part of some program that he had set up. And him and Gertrude sat there at that filthy kitchen table drinking coffee. And she sat there and complained to this reverend that Sylvia was such a burden and that Sylvia was pregnant and that she was a sex worker that was servicing half of the married men in town. And it was so hard on her. And this reverend was just like, oh, that is terrible. Come on, man. Also, when the abuse got really bad, Jenny managed to write a letter and send it to her older sister, Diana, the one that was married and was off living with her husband and her kids. And it described all of the abuse that they were suffering at Gertrude's house. And Jenny was begging Diana to call the police and rescue them. Now, at first, Diana was like, that's insane. There's no way that that's true. Like, it doesn't sound real. And she thought maybe the girls just really hated it there and they were lying so that they can come and live with her instead. But Diana did eventually decide to drop by Gertrude's house unannounced. But Gertrude refused to let Diana in the house, at first telling her that Lester had given her specific instructions to not let Diana see the girls ever again. But when Diana fought back on this, Gertrude just told her she was going to call the cops and slammed the door in her face. Now, Diana was very shaken by the whole thing, so she ended up calling Child Protective Services, and she begged them to go do a safety check on her sisters. Yay, thank God somebody did fucking something. But a social worker showed up to Gertrude's house and just talked to Gertrude in the doorway. She didn't even go in the house. And Gertrude told this woman, oh no, Sylvia's not even here anymore. I kicked that girl out because she's unclean. She's a prostitute and she was pregnant. And the social worker was like, oh gee, that's too bad. And then she went back to her office and wrote up a report that said no further calls needed to be made to the house. She didn't even go in the damn house. Are you kidding? Another time, a little girl, 12-year-old Judy Duke, a kid from the neighborhood, witnessed Gertrude physically assaulting Sylvia. And she went home and she told her mom they were beating and kicking Sylvia. And the mother tells this little girl, that's just what happens when someone gets punished. And that was the end of that. Lady, are you for fucking real? And the one that pisses me off the most is the next door neighbor. She had a damn barbecue and she invites the Banaszewskis over and they all went, Sylvia and Jenny included. This was before she got locked in the basement, of course. But when they get there, Sylvia had a black eye and the neighbor asks, how did that happen? And Paula, the oldest daughter, proudly says, oh, I gave that to her. And then she grabbed a hot mug of water and chucked it at Sylvia. And then Paula and Gertrude just laughed in front of this neighbor. And the neighbor didn't do anything about it, didn't say anything about it, didn't call CPS, didn't call the cops. She was just like, boy, what a strange family. Better not invite them to a barbecue again. Anyway, that lady's name was Phyllis Vermillion. And not long after the barbecue, she popped over to Gertrude's house to borrow a little shovel for gardening. But when she walked into the house, she witnessed Paula kicking the shit out of Sylvia in the living room. And she didn't say or do anything. She just said, thanks for the shovel and went home. What the hell? Fuck you, Phyllis. Call somebody. Anyway, it's infuriating. Like, this is the 1960s. It's not 1860. There were services in place to help this girl. And everybody basically knew that at minimum, Sylvia was being beaten up in this house. They didn't know how badly. But most neighbors later said they just didn't feel like it was their place to intervene. On October 21st, Gertrude had her usual henchman carry Sylvia upstairs and tie her to a bed. And Gertrude told Sylvia that if she could hold her bladder all night, she would be allowed to sleep upstairs with the humans again. And of course, in the morning, Gertrude found that Sylvia had wet the bed. Of course she did. She's permanently damaged. But now to Gertrude, it's time for a punishment. So Gertrude got Sylvia dressed brought her down to the living room and forced her to do the same strip tease for the drunk teenage boys again. And then she assaulted her with a glass Coke bottle again. And then Gertrude brought up to Sylvia the lies that she had told about her daughters, Paula and Stephanie. And she told Sylvia, quote, since you have branded my daughters prostitutes, I will brand you too. And Sylvia was then tied down and gagged. And Gertrude wrote on her 
with pen on her stomach. I am a prostitute and proud of it. Again, I just want to reinforce that I hate saying that word out loud, but these are quotes. So I feel wrong not saying them, you know? Then Gertrude instructed her henchmen to take needles and light them on fire with matches to carve those words into Sylvia's stomach. Then they let one of the younger kids, Gertrude's 10-year-old daughter, Shirley, try to carve slave into Sylvia's chest. But all she did was the S and she did one of the curves backwards so it ended up looking like a three. So that's, yeah. When it was done, Gertrude said to Sylvia, Quote, what are you going to do now, Sylvia? You can't get married now. You can't undress for anyone. What are you going to do now? End quote. And Sylvia said, quote, I guess there's nothing I can do. It's on there. End quote. That night, Jenny snuck down to the basement for a secret visit with her sister. And Sylvia told her that night, I know you don't want me to, but I'm going to die. I can tell. And Jenny cried and hugged her sister and then snuck back upstairs. Not long after Jenny's visit... For some reason, Gertrude went down to the basement, brought her upstairs, and let her sleep in a regular bed, and let her sleep in until noon. Then she got her up at noon, gave her a warm, soapy bath, got her dressed in fresh, clean clothes, and then she brought her down to the kitchen table and gave her a pen and a piece of paper. And Gertrude instructed Sylvia to write a letter. You guys, this is so stupid. (laughs) She was forcing Sylvia to write a I'm running away letter to her parents. And she forced Sylvia to start this letter, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Likens, which is exactly how I address letters to my parents, not Dear Mom and Dad. So then she made Sylvia write this letter. Quote, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said they would pay me if I gave them something. So I got in the car, and they all got what they wanted. And when they finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I've done just about everything I could do just to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I've also cost Gertie more doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids, end quote. And to make it even weirder, she did not have Sylvia sign the note at all. Anyway, then Gertrude starts planning and she tells John Jr. and Jenny that they're going to take Sylvia to a nearby garbage dump and leave her there for dead. Sylvia overhears this and she's like, I'm going to die. Like, today. So she gets up and she tries to run for it, but she's so weak, she can't run that fast. And so Gertrude ends up catching her just as she got to the front door, pulls her back inside. Then Gertrude takes Sylvia into the kitchen and makes her some toast. I mean, she wouldn't want an autopsy to show that her stomach was empty. Gertie didn't want to be accused of starving the girl. But Sylvia tried to eat the toast and found that she was unable to swallow it. So Gertrude, naturally, tries to ram the toast down her throat with a curtain rod. And when that didn't work, she just hit Sylvia across the face with the curtain rod. When she got tired of that, she had John Jr. carry Sylvia down to the basement and told him to tie her up while Gertrude made Sylvia a plate of crackers. When she offered Sylvia the crackers, Sylvia said, feed it to the dogs. They're hungrier than I am. So Gertrude punched Sylvia in the stomach and then left her down there in the basement. On October 24th, I guess this was the day that Gertrude really wanted to finish Sylvia off or something. I don't know. But she ran down to the basement and she tried to hit Sylvia with a chair, but she missed and she hit the chair against the wall and the chair broke into a bunch of pieces. Then she grabbed her tried and true wooden paddle and she wanted to hit Sylvia over the head with it, but she like swung wide and wonky and she ended up hitting herself in the face on the backstroke and giving herself a black eye. Now, Koi, the judo boy, was actually down in the basement with her watching. So he actually stopped Gertrude and was like, do you need me to beat her up for you, you old bag? And so Koi then beat Sylvia with a broomstick until she lost consciousness. I don't know. Sylvia woke up in the middle of the night with a burst of energy and she found the metal scoop part of a little shovel on the basement floor and she spent hours yelling and banging that metal scoop on the ground and on the walls 
begging for help for hours because she knew this was it. She was going to die, but nobody came to her rescue. Later, the neighbors said that they actually did hear the yelling and calls for help, but that it stopped around 3 a.m. So they figured they could just go back to bed and that everything was fine. Fucking Phyllis. One neighbor said they thought about calling the police, but hmm, better not. On the 26th of October, Ricky Hobbs went down to the basement and found Stephanie down there looking at Sylvia and crying. She said that she thought something was terribly wrong because she couldn't wake up Sylvia. The two of them carried Sylvia upstairs, asking Gertrude for help on the way up, but Gertrude couldn't be bothered to get out of her chair. She's tired. The two of them brought Sylvia upstairs and put her in the bathtub. I think they thought maybe putting her in the water would shock her out of it and wake her up, but it didn't work. So they bathed her, got her out of the tub, dried her off, got her dressed. But this is when they realized that Sylvia was definitely not breathing. Stephanie panicked and started trying to do CPR while Ricky was yelling down to Gertrude to help because he thought Sylvia was dead. But Gertrude was screaming back up at the kids that Sylvia was a liar and that she was probably faking. Eventually, Gertrude came upstairs and began beating Sylvia's lifeless body with a book, screaming that she was a faker. But soon she realized the kids were right and that Sylvia was dead. And she had been dead for hours. Sylvia Likens was 16 years old. Gertrude panicked. They all brought Sylvia's body down to the basement again, and Gertrude sent Ricky Hobbs down the street to call the police from a payphone because they didn't have a working phone at their house. While he was gone, Gertrude got everyone on the same page about what their story was. When the cops showed up, Gertrude told them that she was watching this girl and that she was nothing but trouble and that she was pregnant and that she ran away from home, and here's her letter. The cops were like, what the hell? Like, looking at the letter, it was crazy. The kids were all trying to talk. Gertrude was shut them up. It was a little bit of chaos. And in the chaos, Jenny leaned over to one of the police officers and said, if you get me out of here, I will tell you everything. So the cops were like, okay, everybody's coming down to the station. Everybody, let's go. Took everybody to the station, separated everyone, and got a full statement from Jenny. Jenny spilled everything. How Sylvia's body was down in the basement. How Gertrude had forced Sylvia to write that stupid letter that made no sense. And she named all the names of everyone that had hurt Sylvia over these past three months. The cops' jaws were just on the floor because it sounds so unbelievable. So they went back to the house right away, searched the place, and of course they found Sylvia's body in the basement, just like Jenny had told them. But it was so much worse than the cops thought it was going to be. She was so emaciated, covered in wounds and burns and bruises and cuts. And in the throes of death, I guess, Sylvia had bit through her lips and they were just like hanging off of her face. So they took her body for an autopsy and the cops arrested Gertrude Benazuski, Paula, Stephanie, John Jr., and Ricky Hobbs and Coy Hubbard, all for the murder of Sylvia. And they arrested a bunch of neighborhood kids for injury to a person. And if it weren't for Jenny's statement, they may not have even found the need to go back to the house and search and find Sylvia's body. The autopsy showed over 150 wounds, 100 cigarette burns, various second and third degree burns, muscle and nerve damage, and severe bruising. And I already mentioned that she bit through her lips as she was dying. And on top of that, Sylvia's vaginal cavity was so swollen that it was almost swollen completely shut. The medical examiner also said that they found that her hymen was still intact. And he said that this discredits Gertrude's claims that she was a prostitute and that she was pregnant. And the autopsy also revealed that Sylvia was indeed not pregnant, which we all knew. The official cause of death was brain swelling, internal hemorrhaging of the brain, and shock. Gertrude, her kids, Steph and Paula, and Ricky Hobbs and Coy Hubbard were all held with no bail awaiting trial. I don't know where John Jr. went, but I think he was too young to be held without bail. Stephanie's lawyer got her a separate trial. But before it even happened, the DA dropped all the charges. I guess there was a deal so that Stephanie would testify against her family. Gertrude, Paula, John Jr., Ricky, and Coy were all tried together in May 
1966. And the prosecution was going for the death penalty for all of them, even for John Jr., who was 13 at the time of the murder, and Ricky Hobbs, who was 14 at the time of the murder. And the trial was super complicated because there were four different attorneys representing the five of them. So Coy and John shared an attorney, and then John Jr., Paula, and Gertrude all had their own attorneys. But then they were all being tried together. I can't even imagine being on that jury. Now, right before the trial started, Paula went into labor, despite the fact that Gertrude constantly said that Paula was not pregnant. She was rushed to the hospital, and she gave birth to her daughter, who she named Gertrude, in solidarity. Now, Gertrude tried to shift all the blame onto the kids, saying she was mentally ill, severely depressed, really tired, and she has asthma. She claimed she was too weak and tired to be capable of preventing the children from doing shitty things. But Gertrude got on the stand and she really damaged her case just by opening her mouth. And she kept telling the jury that Sylvia was the neighborhood prostitute and was sleeping with half of the married men in town and that she was pregnant, despite the fact that the autopsy confirmed that she wasn't pregnant. Then Gertrude and her attorney put Gertrude's 11-year-old daughter, Marie, on the stand to corroborate everything that Gertrude said. And at first, Marie said all the same things that Gertrude did and was like, mm-hmm, yep, my mom's right. I confirm it all. But then as soon as the prosecution cross examined her, she broke. And all of a sudden she yelled, God help me. And then she admitted everything she had just said was a total lie and said that her mother and her siblings tortured Sylvia to death. Wow. So basically that was the nail in the coffin. Gertrude was found guilty of murder, but did not receive the death penalty. She got life in prison without parole. Paula was convicted of second degree murder, but she appealed and was granted a new trial. But before it even started, she took a plea deal and pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter. She served three years in prison and then was paroled. John Jr., Ricky Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard were all convicted of voluntary manslaughter and were sentenced to 18 months in a juvenile facility. Gertrude appealed as well, and she was granted a new trial too. But this time she was sentenced to 18 years to life in prison with a chance of parole. And all of those neighborhood kids that were charged with injury to a person, all their charges were dropped. So what happened to everyone? Ricky Hobbs, the personal assistant, was 17 when he got out of the juvenile facility. And when he realized the full gravity of what he had done, he suffered a nervous breakdown and began chain smoking all day, every day. And he died of lung cancer at 21. Paula served three years in prison. She was paroled and she moved to Iowa and changed her name. She was exposed on Facebook in 2012. So not that that long ago, really. And Paula then, because of the Facebook exposure, lost her job as a teacher's aide. I don't think we know where she is now. John Jr. went on to be a lay minister counseling children of divorce. He died of complications from diabetes in 2005. He was 52. Coy Hubbard showed no remorse before, during, or after the trial. And he went on to be charged with a double murder later in life after a home burglary gone wrong, but he was acquitted. Then he worked at a gas station in the same town with the same name, but I guess he lost that job after the movie An American Crime came out in 2007. He died that same year of a heart attack at the age of 56. Gertrude spent 18 years being a model prisoner, and every other inmate called her by the nickname Mom. She was granted a parole hearing after 18 years, and when the community found out that she had a chance to be released, they were pissed, including Jenny Likens, who spoke out against her parole, and she began a sidewalk picket campaign with two anti-crime groups. And they also formed a petition and gathered 4,500 signatures, all demanding that Gertrude be kept in jail. But despite all of that, Gertrude was paroled. During the hearing, Gertrude said, quote, I'm not sure what role I had in it because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. I take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia, end quote. She walked out of prison on December 4th, 1985, moved to Iowa to go live with Paula. She changed her name to Nadine and went back to her maiden name, Van Fossen. And she died five years later from lung cancer. Good riddance. Jenny Likens was adopted by the prosecutor's family, the ones that prosecuted Gertrude's case. 
She ended up getting married and having two children. But she died in 2004 of a heart attack at the age of 54. In June 2001, a memorial was erected in Sylvia's honor. And it's a six foot tall granite memorial. And it's in Willowed Park in Indianapolis. And it's inscribed with, quote, This memorial is in memory of a young girl who died a tragic death. As a result, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indianapolis Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children, end quote. So Sylvia Likens' death is credited with the creation of Indiana's mandated reporter laws. So if you don't know what that is, it's a law that states that if a member of the public suspects a child of suffering abuse or neglect, they have a legal obligation to report abuse to authorities. So a teacher, for example, is a mandated reporter of child abuse. So at least something came out of this that can help other children, I guess. This is a very well-known case, probably one of the more well-known cases that came out of Indiana. But if you want more information on this case for some reason, An American Crime is a film that was released in 2007 with Elliot Page cast as Sylvia Likens and Catherine Keener as Gertrude. The Girl Next Door was also released in 2007, and the Investigation Discovery Channel covered this case in their Deadly Women docuseries, and the 45-minute documentary is called Born Bad, and it aired on November 30th, 2009. Or a good book to check out is Torture Mom by Ryan Green. Rest in peace to Sylvia Likens. And I'm sure that Gertrude is feeling nice and toasty while she burns in hell. And that is the end of today's true crime story about the tragic murder of Sylvia Likens and that monster of a woman, Gertrude Banaszewski. Be sure to leave me a comment and let me know your thoughts. And let me know why you think that Sylvia was singled out in that house. And also let me know why you think so many people witnessed the abuse and said nothing. A sign of the times? Brainwashing? Mob mentality? Lead poisoning? I don't know. Let me know in the comments or in the Q&As on Spotify. If you liked today's episode, give me a thumbs up and be sure to leave me a comment and let me know if there's a case you'd like to recommend I cover on cleaning and crime. Thank you so much for watching today's video and don't forget to subscribe and follow along. See you guys in two weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Cleaning and Crime. If you'd like more content from me or you want to see the cleaning side of things, check me out on YouTube, TikTok, or follow my socials, all of which are under the name C. Elise. If you have questions or case ideas to share, email me at cealiseclean at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. These episodes include my personal opinions and all information is compiled by me using references that are publicly available. Sources are included in the show notes and all parties discussed are innocent until proven guilty. See you next time.